how far would you go to get your kid into the right college? Is it too early for me to ask that? Isn't it crazy to think one of the biggest scandals already of 2019 is over people funding inappropriately the opportunity to get their kids to college? Uh, don't wanna, they don't want to lose face. They want to have the best that they can for their own kids, but they're, they're taking advantage of things that other people don't have. And it's a crazy thing that happens in this world when we're afraid of culture or life or the next step getting away from us, isn't it? We do desperate things. I mean, I get it, okay? I've graduated two young men from high school already. I have filled out FAFSA forms. I've paid off my own school loans. I understand what it's like trying to get into college these days. And I've got two more on their way there. And it ain't cheap. And it ain't easy. And it is cutthroat. And I have artists, not athletes. And so they don't chase a ball. And so what do you do in that point? You know what I'm saying? But we think about this for a moment and excuse me, think about this for a moment, and we begin to realize that when people are afraid of what's not going to be in front of them, of opportunities that they're not going to be able to grab onto, people begin to just do crazy, crazy stuff to try and secure the next steps in front of them. And that's what we're kind of looking at today in Mark chapter 6. Would you say Mark chapter 6 with me? Mark 6. Oh, sorry, I said it wrong too today. Mark 6. Why don't you go ahead and open up your Bibles there, if you will. And we've been in this series uh, out of the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is one of the first four books of the New Testament. Mark is the one writing this, this perspective of who Jesus is. The Gospel is literally the good news that Jesus has come to earth, God in flesh. He gave his life on our behalf to cover the forgiveness of our sins and provide life everlasting. That's the, the purpose of the cross. It's the purpose of his death. It's the purpose of his resurrection. And in that message, we've described this interaction of how a young preacher is really trying to give an account to help people understand their engagement with Jesus and how Jesus should be seen in their world, in their relationships, in their time. And so we've been asking two questions, two questions that uh, can help us begin to understand a little better who Jesus is and what we're being pressed into as we're reading these words. And the two questions were this. First and foremost, is Jesus worth following? Is Jesus worth following? When you, when you read the accounts, when you understand who he is, when you hear the teachings, when you see the miracles, is there evidence that causes you to lean in and say, this, this, this could very well be God. This is, this is what I think God in flesh would look like. This, is, this should demand something different of me. And so the next question we've been asking, if so, will you? If there's any reason to listen to Jesus, if there's any reason to begin to live a life that looks like his, is, are we going to be the kind of people that are going to follow after who Jesus is? And as a church, it's our prayer that every one of us would that we would lean in deeply to the words of Scripture and begin to see Jesus more fully in our lives and be the kind of people that surrender our lives back to God. So Mark chapter 6, we're going to start there today, actually in about verse 21. And this is an intriguing passage because it's a dark passage. 
it is, shall we say, a sinful passage. Most would say, if you understand the context of what we're about to read into, if you understand the dynamic of what's happening in this time, in this season, it is not child appropriate. This is not a PG-13 passage. Now, it doesn't come off as explicit. Mark's very discreet about it all. But let me set the backdrop for you. King Herod has decided that his brother's wife should be his wife. So he has an affair, he marries her, and then what you're about to experience is a king's authority leveraged in front of his friends while his niece slash daughter is the center of attention. Does that, does that put it squarely enough that you can part putting framework about this? This is a show that's coming on after nine o'clock at night. You get you getting where I'm saying? Here's what it says. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials, his military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. Okay, so we have a room of men that are celebrating, men of influence, men of power, men of authority. Okay, here's what happens. When the daughter of Herodias, that's his wife, came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king says to the girl, ask me anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. So she went out. She said to her mother, what, what should I ask for? The head of John the Baptist. At once, the girl hurried to the king with the request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Look at these next words. The king was greatly distressed. Why? Because that's a terrible request. Because who does that kind of thing? No, look what it says. The king was greatly distressed because of his oaths, because of his dinner guests. He did not want to refuse her. You've got a king who says, hey, I've given my word already. I don't want to look bad in front of anybody. So let's just see. Let's just see how we're going to work this out. So he immediately sent her to the executioner, sent to an executioner with orders to bring John's head. That man went, beheaded John in prison, brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl and she gave it to her mother. On hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Now, there's, John the Baptist is really kind of partly an afterthought in this conversation. John the Baptist is the one who's declaring the way of Jesus. John the Baptist is the one who's speaking a, a kingdom of repentance, a, a, a life of change before God. And because of his truth-telling ways, his speaking into culture, he had actually become arrested because he was shaking the cage of those in power, okay? So he's in prison because he's doing ministry. He's speaking in ways that's shaking up the current culture. But we have this corrupt king who's married his brother's wife, who brings in his niece, who's now his stepdaughter. And for all the men of power and influence in the world, he brings her in to entertain them. And so most scholars who talk about this conversation, she is dancing in a way that is seductive. And so her uncles 
father's, king's pleasure is not in the skill set of exquisite dance, but the seduction of a lustful heart. If that doesn't turn your stomach, it should. It should bother you that men would leverage their lives in a way that it would exploit those around them for their own pleasure. But he gives his word. What do you want? Uh, a new camel, right? A great dress, a wonderful pair of shoes, a higher place in the, in the kingdom where you can oversee the, the, the fields. What do you want? No, um, let me go ask mom, right? And so mom, who has had this grudge against John the Baptist because he's been speaking against her and her sin, uh, she goes, well, we just need to shut him up. So let's kill him. Nothing else seems to work. So why don't you go back in and why don't you ask for John the Baptist's head? So she does. She literally, she walks in, she asks for John the Baptist's head. And because he's embarrassed, he's already given his word. He overcommitted. Men of power and influence are looking at him going, well, what kind of man is he? What kind of man gives his word, says that he can follow through, can do whatever he wants to do. And he stands in that moment. And instead of going, I've had too much to drink. As your king, I'm embarrassed that I've even done this. Guys, this party's gotten too out of control. He says, okay. One executioner, John the Baptist, make sure you take a platter and let's bring it back. And so a man goes in and kills John the Baptist in a moment of fear, a moment of pride, a moment of power. And so he brings this head back and he hands it to his daughter. And she, with the excitement of the moment, takes it and says, look, mom, look what dad gave me. Sometimes you read the scriptures and you're like, is, is this really in here? How, how does God show up in moments like this, right? How, how does God begin to work in these moments? What's interesting is as you're opening back Mark chapter 6, you're looking at it and you're like, this story doesn't seem to fit in the overall narrative of Mark. Everything else has been about Jesus, his miracles, his teaching, and people are now rallying to him. Desperate people in desperate situations are coming to Jesus, and you're expecting more of the same, right? Look at Jesus. He pulls a rabbit out of his hat. Look at Jesus. He heals somebody. Look at Jesus. Isn't he a great orator? And all of a sudden, and in the middle of this, there's the beheading of John the Baptist, and people are afraid to follow Jesus. And the next story is the miracle of the feeding 5,000. We have a portrait of a party gone wild and a portrait of a miracle of a different king, Right? one who serves and cares, who meets people in their needs. But we've been tracking this, this conversation, right, about immediately. 14 times the book of Mark uses this phrase immediately. Well, there's, there's two more times that it actually comes up in this chapter. But here's what I want you to know about fear before we jump there, right? Fear can cause us to do almost anything. When we look at Herod and we look at his incredibly poor moment of leadership, we realize that fear can lead us to do almost anything, can't we? 
And if we're honest with ourselves, it has been in our fears that we have made some of our worst decisions in life. Because we're desperate. We were scared. We too wrestled with how we might look in front of others. And so this becomes the backdrop. The disciples of Jesus are realizing that the powers that be are not only exploiting those below them, but they're now killing those who are against them. And Jesus has gathered some disciples. A great crowd has followed after him. He's fed them. And then it says this in verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to Bethsaida. While he dismissed the crowd, after, uh, while he dismissed the crowd, after leaving them, he went on to the mountainside to pray. So Jesus takes a little bit of a break, begins to recharge, refresh, recenter his life towards the kingdom of God and what God is doing in this moment. And then this happens. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake. And he was alone on land. He saw his disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, meaning Jesus, walking on the lake. This is a miraculous work. He was about to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and they were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, take courage. It's I. It is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them. The wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they crossed over, they landed in Gennesaret, and they anchored there. So Jesus does this miracle of of feeding this huge crowd. You know, he takes what's been offered to him. He does a miraculous work. It feeds thousands of people. The disciples, they're, they're not really catching what's going on here. They're not really catching the deeper meaning, the, the perspective of who Jesus is. And so Jesus says, why, why don't you just go ahead? Why don't you go hop out onto your boat? You get headed across and I'll meet you. I mean, what had happened is, you know, Jesus was actually going around trying to get some space and people kept following, kept pursuing him, kept chasing after him. So Jesus has to literally come away and send his disciples ahead and it sets up for this huge gap, this great platform for Jesus to be able to do something miraculous in front of them. But what happens is in the midst of this storm, in the midst of the wave, and in the midst of their strain, in their midst of their obedience back to God, they're being kind of blown off course, and God meets them in that moment. But they don't see it. Because they're, they're not looking in some ways for God, right? They're looking for the next miracle. They're looking for the next moment of power. They're looking for the next moment that Jesus is about to establish a kingdom that's going to overthrow everything that they've been a part of as far as the political system, the kingdom of the world. They're anticipating their benefit rather than the awe of God. And here's what I need you to know. Is that fear can cloud our perception of who Jesus really is. Fear can really cloud our perception of who Jesus really is. I want you to think about this for a moment. Think about the last time you were pressed up against something difficult. 
Your, your checkbooks not coming together, right? Your marriage is on the edge of destruction. You've made some destructive decision on your own, and you know you're going to be held accountable. Things that have been happening in private could go public. And oftentimes, when hardships come around us, when the strain of the moment, the working towards what we really want, when things begin to press in around us, the first thing we do is say, why would Jesus allow this? Where's Jesus in the midst of this? Jesus, how come I have to go through this, right? And the same thing happens for the disciples. <laughs> Jesus seems to bail out that family with sickness. Jesus seems to bail out that family who's hungry. Jesus seems to do this miracle. That, you, you hearing what I'm saying? And their hearts were hardened against Jesus. And I, I think I get that. The reality is, and psychology will tell us, that when fear shows up against us, there are a few things that we can choose, right? We can choose flight. We can choose to fight. Or we could choose to freeze. We've all been there, right? The moment scares us larger than we're ready for, and next thing we want to do is we're just ready to go. We're going to throw down and get through this, right? The moment gets difficult. You're not sure how you're going to, so you run. Maybe we run to a drink. Maybe we run to a friend. Maybe we run to some sort of outlet. Maybe we run to seclusion. Maybe we run, but we get away, right? Or some of us, we just stop. We're, we're paralyzed. We don't know whether to step forward, to step back, to step out, to step in. But what if there was a fourth option for all of us? What if the reality of our fear is only overcome by one thing? And it's faith, right? What if, there's a, what, what if faith has the ability to crush whatever fear we may have? The fear of being exposed, the fear of being seen for who we really are, uh, the fear of things falling apart, the fear of things not being in our control, the fear of death, the fear of bankruptcy? What if faith is really the only dynamic that has the ability to sustain us when life is hard and difficult? In both scenarios, we see two different kings with two different outcomes, death and life. King, king Herod responds out of fear, and he ends up killing John the Baptist. Jesus responds to fear by encouraging faith in his disciples to not lose it while they're in the midst of the storm. And we encounter two immediate responses to fear. Herod's response out of fear was the immediate death and destruction. But, King's, but Jesus' response to fear is immediate. Is immediate to courage and new life. It's a tale of two kings. One that brings life and one that brings death. And there are some things in life that you can only find when you go to the source. Wouldn't you agree? 
maybe at this point, it's probably good to take a little bit of a pause and just talk real life for a second. So I, I moved to Champaign a little bit over five years ago. I, I'd been in Champaign a few times. I, I went to college in central Illinois. And so I, I, I've been around this area quite a bit. I, I had gone to the State Farm Center, which was originally known the Assembly Hall. And, you know, I, I've been to events around here. But when I moved here, I really wanted to kind of get the the towny vibe, you know, where am I supposed to go if I'm supposed to experience this or experience that, right? So let's just, let's just talk about the things that happen around here. Uh, just let's talk about food for a moment, okay? So, so I, was, I was told to go to this, this certain place because they claim to have the best biscuits and gravy in town. Been there, sat there, ate it. Nope, I think it was false advertising. I'm just going to tell you. I asked a few people, I said, what's the place I got to go to to get a good burger? Oh, the best burger? Well, it's, it's at this place. And so I went down there with my family over a break. Place wasn't crowded. The day was kind of dreary, but we walked in, we sat down, and we all tried different burgers. We wanted to really see what it was like. Nope. Nope. I was not impressed. And then I went to the place that they said, if you're going to get a good breakfast, if you want the best breakfast in the area, you go here. And I sat down. And I heard the harps of angels. (laughs) And I experienced the original in town. You know what I'm saying? And I wept deeply. (laughs) I wept deeply, you know? And then I gave it another try. Let's, let's, Let's find the best burger in town. I've eaten a few sandwiches in my lifetime. Can I say that? But I'm just going to tell you, that green chili burger at Farron's, Jesus made that burger. (laughs) I'm just going to tell you. And there is a clear difference between going to the source and going to the counterfeit. Can I get an amen? Friends, we have done this, haven't we? We've gone for the cheap imitation. We chased our money. We chased our significance. We've chased relationships. We've chased popularity. We've chased power. We've chased comfort. We've chased everything we can chase in our lives. And it does not satisfy like a relationship with Jesus can. Yes, a relationship with Jesus can be difficult. Yes, a relationship with Jesus may challenge you. Yes, a Jesus relationship may confront you and cause you to think differently about the world that you're a part of. But I will tell you, when you consume the original, when you consume the one, when you get to experience Jesus and have a relationship with him, your life can change. And nothing satisfies like a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Guys, it's easy to stay in fear. And some of us, friends, it's where we're comfortable. It's what we know. So what if we were challenged to live by faith? Because I think the very death that comes from a king that chases himself is also found in the fear of disciples who want what they want rather than pursuing what God wants. And so you begin to see Jesus in a different way when we begin to see Jesus in this miracle. And Jesus begins to call us out, call us away from the things that we're afraid of and begins to 
invite us to him. I mean, maybe that's what we need to learn out of this is that Jesus calls us out of our fears by calling us to him. To him. Jesus calls out the wind and the waves. Uh, Jesus calls out Peter onto the waves and another miracle. Jesus calls us out of our death caused by sin into a life of faith that's only found in Jesus. And Jesus calls us out of our fears to be the center of our lives. And friends, this is difficult. This is difficult because some of us, some of us, I have done this, have tried to put other things at the center of my life. Maybe it's my marriage. Maybe it's my kids. Maybe it's my new truck. Or maybe it's my church attendance. Do you understand what I'm saying? The only reality that changes our world is Christ on the throne of our hearts. Our knees bent, our hands hands extended, and our heads looking up saying, God, have your way in me. And so every decision and every relationship and every opportunity, every conversation, every circumstance is an opportunity to press it before God and say, God, what would you do in this moment? God, what would you want from this relationship? God, how would you have me respond? God, what would you want me to know about you? Last of all, Jesus calls us out of our fears to focus on him. Do you know where we usually look the most when we're afraid? In the mirror, don't we? We look at ourselves. And either, either, either the track of self-condemnation begins to play, the track of self-doubt begins to play, the, the track of self-worth begins to play. And when the only faith you have is just in yourself, you have a very limited perspective. For some of us, that's, that's truth. And we go, man, I, I get that. For some of us, we're like, that hurts. Friends, it's not intended to hurt anybody. It's intended to, for us to focus on what really matters. Jesus says, look at me. Look at me. And you know what we see? We see a much greater perspective that our sin doesn't define us. Our past doesn't control us. Our money doesn't limit us. Our power doesn't qualify us. We see a cross, a suffering servant, where God would give of himself, serve humanity, love beyond reason, but ultimately would give his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, to be the payment of our sin. And we see this new life. We see this new forgiveness. We see this new way of living beyond us that only comes through Jesus. So what would happen? What would happen if we could see? If we could see beyond our sin and our fears to an identity built in Jesus? What what would that look like?
If we're being honest, there are many times when life's fear come in and just consume us. And everyone experiences uh, mountaintops and then goes through different valleys. We can feel like we're really high in our faith and we can feel like we're really low in our life. So why do we let, why do we let our fears identify us? Why do we let our sin anchor us into something that God looks beyond? We say things like, God, I'm, I'm so afraid. And God says, give me your fear. God, I'm, I'm paralyzed in worry. And God says, give me your anxiety. God, God, can I trust you more than anything else? God, what about, what about when life hits? Come to me. God, God how am I going to pay my next bill? Come to me. God, what am I going to do? Just, just look to me. God, God I'm so overwhelmed. Just, just, just look at me. Have you ever had those moments? Those moments where your perspective and all that you see and all that you are fades away because your only focus is God. Let's move to a time of response. I was chatting with one of my boys yesterday. We were talking about life. Who he wants to be. What he wants to do. And you know, as a parent, nobody believes more in their children than you, right? You'll clear the obstacles. You'll do whatever it takes. And I was reading an article the other day that said back in the day, Helicopter parenting was all the rage, right? Any of you raised by helicoptering parents? Yeah. But they didn't have cell phones, and they didn't have all the things that we have today, and they've defined my generation of parenting differently than helicopter parenting. We thought helicopter parenting was bad. They call it snowplow parenting. It's the kind of parents that clear the way so that their children have no obstacles. I looked at my son and we talked about these moments of anxiety and fear and frustration and I said to him this, you know, it's, there are these moments that a child will climb to the top of a slide and they get to the top and they're like, dad, I can't do this. And you know, one time down the slide and it's going to be a thousand times down the slide, Right? You know the higher the slide and the more curly the slide, the, the, more, the more fun it may be. And so in, in the most loving compassion, I said to my son, there are times that when we get to the top of the slide and you have a chance to take a step, I don't know whether to walk you down the stairs or just give you a good push. To which his eyes were like, Oh, so that's the kind of parent you are, huh? Is that what? Friends, we, we climb the slide a lot as people, don't we? And we get to the top and we can see things we've never seen before. And for some of us, just the, the challenge is enough just to climb the stairs 
and get to the top. And when we got down, we go, okay, I stood up there a little bit longer. I don't think God's going to push you. He might allow a friend in your life to push you. He might allow a, a circumstance or situation to cause you to slip and slide and end at the bottom. But there's something that happens between the parent and the child. When the, parent walk, when, the, when the child walks to the top and the parent just says, you've got this. And they get to the top and they put their little bottom on the, on the top and their feet are kicking because they're nervous. And you walk to the end and you say, just look at me. Just come to me. And we go, but you don't know my life. That's, that's so simple. My life's... You know, to a little child, when they're at the top of a slide, paying bills is not intimidating. When you're at the top of a slide, arguments, broken relationships, don't seem to be heard. Because all the child sees is the height by which they could fall. And if we were really honest, that's exactly what our bills look like. That's exactly what our health looks like. That's exactly what our marriage looks like. That's Insert whatever you, you know, you know without a shadow of a doubt that when you sit in that moment, all you see is the height by which you might fall. And I want you to know your heavenly father says, come on, come on. One of my favorite things is to watch young parents when they catch their children at the bottom and the kid doesn't know whether to laugh or to cry. And so both happen, right? And all of a sudden fear and faith collide. And that kid grabs that parent and holds on so tight. And you know what they say? I can trust you. It was worth it. I think I wet my shorts, but I, I want to do it again, right? <laughs> Friends, would you slide down the slide? Would you look to your heavenly father? And would you give your life to him? Let's pray. God, in this moment, there are many of us who are wrestling with just this reality of, uh, of climbing to the top of our slide. And God, we, we just want to come back down. God, would you help us to grab hold of those rails and to just pause for a moment? just to listen for a moment, just to trust for a moment. And God, maybe in the silence of our fear, maybe, maybe, maybe you would calm our hearts and calm our minds and ignite our spirit. May we hear you. May we see you. But God, if our slide's so high that there's, they've built that, that awning 
and the, the future's too curvy for us to see what's around, would we be reminded that of all the slides we've ever gone down, you've always been there. May we trust enough to do, to be, to live, to love as you would want us to. God, it's in your son's holy and precious name that we pray. Amen. Friends, if you're new at first, we're, uh, we're going to go into a time of response. And what we mean by a time of response is literally the band is going to begin to play some music and we're going to step forward to sing. Some of us will pause in this moment just to reflect. Some of us will grab our, our connect card and maybe we'll make a decision today of, of accepting Christ and following him through baptism or joining a group or finding a place to serve, whatever it may be. But this time of response is literally a time where people will move from their chairs and they will go to stations. We have stations up front where we can respond and some will come and some will pray. Some of them today because they, they're frozen at the top of their slide and they're, they just want the courage to go down. Some of us will respond today by going to the, the give and respond boxes. There are four of them around the room where people will put their connect card in as a decision of faith or they'll give of their tithes or offerings. Some people literally will open their phone in this moment and we use a give app to give of our tithes or offerings because we are partnering with the mission of God. Not only what happens in these four walls or in this community, but around the world so that the kingdom of God may be advanced. But many of us, Matter of fact, the majority of us will go to these six tables that are around the room where there's a, there's a candle that's lit and there's a tray of bread and, ju- bread and juice. We, we call this time a time of communion. People will slowly gather around those tables and they'll take their time and they'll grab the bread and they'll grab the cup of juice and they'll eat the bread and they'll drink the juice and they will remember that it was Jesus who said, this is my body that was broken. This is my blood that was poured out, was shed for you. And we commemorate And we celebrate that it's the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ that serves as the evidence that our sins are forgiven, that love wins, that eternity is held in the hands of Jesus. And if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, we would ask that you go to that table as well. It's open to anyone who believes in that sacrifice and the work of Jesus. So let's stand, let's sing, and as you feel it's appropriate, when the time is right, may you respond.